open them up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. We continue our study verse by verse through the Gospel penned by one of the disciples, one who was there. Matthew 22. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. Matthew chapter 22, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you. We have been looking again at the story of Jesus' life. Here we find ourselves in the last few days before he will be betrayed. He will be handed over to the, the, his enemies. He will be crucified. He will suffer in our place. He will be buried and three days later rise again. We are just a couple of days away from that as we study through this section of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we've discussed, Jesus is now in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. He is there for the Passover feast, and many people have been following him. His public ministry has now been going on for about three years. And everywhere he goes, everything that he does draws more and more people to him. And his fame has spread throughout the, the entire area. And we mentioned that as he came for this particular Passover, that Even some were in Jerusalem wondering if Jesus was coming, wondering if he was going to come for this Passover festival, because not only had his fame been growing, but the religious leaders' animosity towards Jesus has been growing as well. No doubt some many wondering, okay, is Jesus going to come? And if he comes, what's going to happen? And this has all been taking place as we've been looking the last couple of weeks. It has happened. The, the confrontation is taking place. Jesus comes to the temple. He comes to the temple mount and he sees all that is going on, the money changers and all the commotion, all of the detractions that are taken away from worshiping God and praying to God. And it's become all this commercial stuff. Jesus turns over the money tables and casts them out. He says, you You've turned the house of God, the house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And then we've been looking the last couple of weeks at the interaction that now Jesus is back there again the next day, and he's discussing, he's, he's, he's illustrating the heavenly truths in parables to the religious leaders. And there are many, many people around, no doubt. We've looked at, at how, how Jesus has been speaking to them. We first looked back in chapter 21 at the, the one parable about the, the father with his two sons. And he, how he asked the first son, he said, go and work in the vineyard. And initially he said, sure, dad, but he didn't go. And the second son who said at first, no, I, there's, there's no way I'm going, but then eventually went and did it. And Jesus asked, which one of these two did the will of the Father? Pointing out that it's much more than just talking the talk. And those who eventually come around to a rep- and have a repentant heart and follow the will of God through repentance and action in their lives, they are the ones who please the Father. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. How do we do the will of the Father? Well, Jesus answered that question in John chapter 6, verse 40. He said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus, speaking through this parable and speaking these truths, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we behold the Son. We behold Jesus. We see Him for who He is. 
We embrace the truth of who He is and what He has done, and we place our faith in Him and Him alone, and in that we have eternal life. That, that, that the message that was given to them in that, they miss it. They totally gloss over that. Jesus gives them yet another parable in chapter 21, the parable of the landowner. And as we mentioned, every Jew that heard Jesus saying that knew exactly what he was speaking about, that the landowner was God the Father, the vineyard that was planted was Israel, and the, those that were placed in trusting with that, the, the children of Israel. But when he came to get fruit from this vineyard that he planted and provided everything for, he did not get the return that he had planted the vineyard for. And so it says that he sent workers there to get the proceeds from the, the vineyard. And, and they, they beat some, they killed others, speaking of the prophets that he sent to them. And he said, finally, they will respect my son if I send my son. And Jesus prophetically speaking about the fact that he is that son. And that they, in, in the parable, they killed the son as well, pointing to what will happen again in just a couple of days. It tells us that at the end of chapter 21 that they knew, as Jesus was now saying these parables, the religious leaders knew that they were speaking about them. And then last week, we looked at the parable of the marriage feast, giving again Jesus another opportunity to hear and respond to the truth. And the underlying theme of that is that there is this feast that is coming. There is this eternity, this eternal life that is coming. But we must come dressed in proper wedding clothes. We must come properly clothed. It's not in our own righteousness. It's not in our own good works. It is, again, a surrendered life to Jesus wrapped in his righteousness. I say that to lead us into where we go today in chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Notice it says, Then, then the Pharisees, when they were presented with all the irrefutable evidence, convicted in their hearts, fell on their faces and repented. Just making sure you're following along. <laughs> no, it says the Pharisees went and plotted together how might they might trap him in what he said. Their hearts were hardened even more. And bottom line, when we are faced with the truth, there is still only two responses. When we are faced, come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is, we have two choices to make. We can fall at his feet as Lord and Savior, or we can harden our hearts and fight against him. Jesus said, you are either for me or against me. There's no neutral ground. There's no, there's no other option. You are either for me or against me. And again, these Pharisees, these religious leaders when facing all of this proof that has been, then has been presented before them, harden their hearts. And it says, again, verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things 
that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. The Pharisees faced with again these parables, they know that Jesus is speaking about them, that other people are hearing these things. Again, instead of responding in repentance, they pull themselves away, gathering together, and they they start plotting together. Okay, how are we going to undermine him? How are we going to take him out? And they come up with this plan to send some of their disciples, some of their pupils, along with Herodians, to go together to Jesus. Now, I can only speculate as to why they're doing this this way, because they're probably thinking, okay, if we go back... He's going to see us coming, but if we send our pupils, maybe he'll think that, they're in, that he could still influence them, and, and we'll send Herodians along with him because he'll never think that we're coming together like that, because understand, the Pharisees couldn't stand the Herodians, and the Herodians couldn't stand the Pharisees. They didn't agree on anything except their desire to get rid of Jesus. That's the only thing that they agreed on. We look at what they, that they stood for completely. The Pharisees were a, a devout, pious, religious group. They, were, they believed in the, 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 the Word of God in all of the Old Testament that we hold and then some additional books on top of that, that, that all of that was, was the Word of God. They placed a heavy legalistic burden upon the people to follow not only the, the laws in the Word but a whole bunch of man-made rules on top of that and they absolutely hated the fact that Rome was ruling over them. They believed that they should be a sovereign nation that they should have no other government over them, and hated Roman occupation. The Herodians, on the other fact, and they got their name because of their loyalty to King Herod, who had, who had his power because of his loyalty to Rome. So they were totally cool with this whole thing and looking for all of the benefits that it came from submitting to Rome as a government. So again, understand, they're united in one thing, and that's their hatred of Jesus. So they, they come together And their approach, as we see it laid out here, is to try to catch Jesus off guard, to try to butter him up a little bit. Look at how they say this. It says, it says, teacher, we know that you are truthful. And that literally means we know that you have truth in your very being. It is not simply that, they, that you speak the truth, but you are the truth. We believe that. We, we see that what you say can be trusted. It's obvious that you are speaking from God himself and you don't care what anybody else thinks. You're going to say it the way it is. They're they're laying this all out and again, trying to set Jesus up, building him up with all of this thing because notice it says, tell us then, because of this, what do you think? No doubt trying to again lure Jesus in. They're they're thinking they're going to draw him right into a trap. They, they were either there or the, the Pharisees were there and telling the students this, that Jesus on many occasions says, you have heard it said, Some, what, something that was in the word, but I say to you, you've heard it said you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, as he, in the Sermon on the Mount, telling us what the heart of the Father is behind the word of God and say, no, let, let's see, let, tell us what you think trying to draw, us in, draw him into this trap. And the question that they ask, is it in accordance with the law of God for us to pay this tax to Rome or, notice the word or there, not? They're giving him a, 
a question that they think can only be answered yes or no. They give him two options, or. And we're going to have to use our imagination here because back then nobody liked paying taxes. So, <laughs> but, but we understand, we do, we understand the necessity of taxes as citizens, right? I mean, the taxes, the, they are a necessity. We, we, we like what our taxes provide for us. Protection, police, fire, our military, you know, the protection that is afforded to us because of the tax dollars we pay, the infrastructure that is, that, is, that is maintained because of the taxes we pay, the roads and all of that kind of stuff. The same thing back then. The, the, the Jews had great benefit because of the taxes that they pay because of the Roman occupation. They had great protection. Nobody messed with Rome. I mean, Rome, the, the Pax Romana, the peace that came because of Rome. And the infrastructure, the roads that, Roman, that the Romans built, some are still around today. Some still traveled on today. So there was benefit to the taxes. But this specific tax that they're talking about is, is this one, this poll tax. It wasn't based on income. It wasn't based on what you purchased. It wasn't a sales tax. This tax had one purpose, and that was for Rome to, to just stick it to you that you are under our authority. It was a poll tax. Every person paid one denarius a year, and it was just in, to show the authority of Rome over them. And that was the point that he's putting to, that they're putting to here. Not only that, it was required to be paid in a denarius that had the, 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 as we see, the image of Caesar on it. And most Pharisees said that you shouldn't carry that coin because it would be idolatry to carry that coin around with you. I find it interesting somebody could produce one when Jesus asked for one. Again, their entire goal is to trap Jesus. They're expecting that he can only answer this, yes or no. If he answers it, yes, it is lawful to pay this tax. The Herodians are going to be okay with that answer, but most of the people that are listening won't be. They're looking for the Messiah that is going to deliver them from the oppression of Rome, not one that says, yeah, go ahead and pay the tax to Rome. But if he answers it, no, the Pharisees are going to be in agreement with that, and the, the majority of the people will be, but they realize that if he says no, Rome will look at that as a treasonous comment, and they win either way. Yes or no. Trying to trap Jesus, look at his response. First of all, he says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Just, uh, just a little advice from Pastor Brett. Don't play games with God. Don't think that you can somehow trap or manipulate God, that, that you can somehow, somehow come to him with this, this, this deal that he can't pass up. He knows our hearts. He knows what's behind everything that we say. Matter of fact, Psalm 139 says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. I might suggest it says a lot about your relationship with God, how you react to those verses. If, if you find great comfort in those verses, we should as Christians find great comfort in those verses. 
that he knows everything, that he knows everything that we're going through. The creator of the universe, sovereign, almighty God, knows everything about every detail of your life, every thought, every word. If that makes you uncomfortable, that just says that there's something in your life that you need to deal with. He knows about it already. You've searched me and known me. That's the truth. He knows everything about it. Just go to him with it. Confess it. It's actually a beautiful thing that he knows all of the things about us. Everything. Every word. Every word before it said, behold, O Lord, you know it. You know the heart behind it. They think that they're pulling one over on Jesus. He sees right through it. And he says, he doesn't dodge the question. He says, what do you pay this with? A denarius. Somebody get one for me. Gets it for me. He said, whose likeness and inscription is on it? They said Caesar's. And notice his response, render. That means to give back or to pay back, meaning that it is owed to Caesar what is his. And notice they asked an, an or question. Notice Jesus' response. To Caesar and to God what is God's. It's not a yes or no. It's a yes and yes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. The Bible is not silent as to what rendering to Caesar means to you and I today. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Keep your finger here. Romans chapter 13. Page 1472. If you have the same Bible as me. Romans chapter 13. Verse 1, every person, anyone exempt? No. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Skipping on ahead to verse 5, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience' sake, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Peter, along the same line, tells us side by side in 1 Peter chapter 2, this same thing. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as one in authority or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, it's, I know what you're thinking. He didn't live in America in these days. I mean, he didn't have the same government over him that we do. You're right. <laughs> he had Nero, who used Christians as torches in his garden. They had the oppressive Roman government over them. Now, Peter goes on to say that we are to use Christ as our example. 
Just a few verses later, we are to use Christ as our example in all things. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. That is how we go through this. We might not agree with things. We might not understand it all, but we know that God has placed authority over us and he will judge righteously. Jesus entrusted himself completely to this and when he stands, in just a few days, when it's going to take us a couple, several weeks to get there, but in a few days from what we're looking at right now, he is going to stand before Pilate. And Pilate says, do you not realize that I have the authority to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you don't have any authority over me except what is given from above. And he submitted to the authority that eventually put him on the cross. He is our example Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But how does that work now when we look at this and to God what is God's? What, is that, what does that look like? What, is that, what does that mean in all practical, practicality? Well, Jesus, I think, in how he answered rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar, tells us what we are to render unto God. He held up the denarius and he said, whose inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. So we need to look for something that has the inscription of God on it, the image of God on it, in order for us to determine then what we are to then give to God. What is that? Well, the Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God. And David says it in the Psalms. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, quotes this. Peter and Paul both tell us in their epistles that the inscription of God's law is written on our hearts. So what bears his image, what bears his inscription? All of us. Every bit of us. That is what we are to render to God, to give back to God. All of us. Every bit of our being. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our bodies, our very lives, a living sacrifice. It's the, only, it's the only response that makes sense. How do these things come together? How do, we, how do we put these two things together? Well, we need to understand, the Bible tells us that this is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3, our, our home is in heaven. But we have dual citizenship. Our final citizenship is there, but we have citizenship here, and we have great benefits being here, we have, but we have enormous responsibilities being here. We are blessed. We are blessed. I don't think anybody would argue in this room that we are blessed to live in the United States of America. We have amazing benefits, and we have responsibilities as citizens in this country, but we have greater benefits and greater responsibility to our ultimate home in heaven. There's no, there, there's no question as a Christian where our greatest loyalty lies. But Jesus is not in this, even drawing this dividing line or compartmentalizing our lives. All of our lives need to be lived out totally and completely for the Lord. We're going to see that again as we finish our study today. As Jesus answers, what's the greatest commandment? We are to live all out for the Lord, but our obligation to God covers our entire life. In everything that we do, we are his ambassadors while we are here. So bottom line, unless a law in our country directly violates 
the Word of God, we are to submit to that authority that is over us. Both Peter and Paul would eventually be executed because they refused to render unto Caesar what belongs to God. And that should only be the same with us. Now, they are blown away by Jesus' answer. Notice it says, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. They thought that they had Jesus in the perfect, I mean, they'd, they'd huddled up over this thing. They, they, they all agreed, this will get them. And Jesus' answer totally blows them away. And we see then on the same day, verse 23, some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, which is why they are sad, do you see? <laughs> they came to Jesus and questioned him. They believed that when you died, you just stopped existing. So they come to Jesus and ask him this question. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. They are quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 25, where this was laid out. This law was given that if a man marries a woman and he dies before they have a son to carry on his name. It is the responsibility and duty of the brother to marry her. And the first son that they have together would be his brother's and carry on his brother's name. That is the, the whole premise behind this commandment that was given. So they quote this. And verse 25 now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. I'm thinking if I'm six or seven, I'm saying, wait a second, let, are we sure that that's what this says? <laughs> they're, they're saying that this man married a, his wife, he died. Brother takes on the responsibility, he dies before they have a son. Third, fourth, you get it down the line, she marries all seven brothers, all seven brothers die without having a child. Last of all, verse 27, the woman died. In the resurrection, which they don't believe in, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Verse 29, but Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. These Sadducees, again, a religious group, but in total opposition to the Pharisees. Again, these guys, many believe the Herodians came out of the Sadducee sect. Very different than the Pharisees, again, in everything except their hatred of Jesus. They believed in only the first five books that, of, the, of the Bible that we hold, the books of Moses, we call them the Pentateuch, the books of the law. That is all that they believed, that is all that they studied, that's all that they memorized, but they were very liberal in its interpretation. They were very liberal in the way that they lived their lives. They were the high society folks. They were the ones who had a lot of money and in the class the high class situation. They were the ones who said, hey, this whole Roman thing is all right, so let's see how we can work it and manipulate it and the whole thing. Again, totally contrary to what the Pharisees came with. 
And so they come to Jesus and they ask this question. And again, understand, they do not believe in the resurrection. So they bring this question to Jesus, not for information. They don't really want an answer to their question. They just want to humiliate Jesus. They want to ask him a question that will make him look foolish when he answers it. And make no mistake that that is still a ploy of many today that come to us as Christians asking questions that they really don't care what the answer is. They just want to make us look foolish. Can God really make a rock that is too heavy for him to lift? Answer me that, Christian guy. You know. Where did Cain get his wife anyway? Hmm. This old rapture thing that you talk about. If you give one of your kidneys and the rapture happens, what happens to your kidney? Hmm? It's important information inquiring minds want to know. No, they don't. Again, their whole point is to make fun, to belittle, and that's their whole point here. I mean, the real question that everyone should ask is why would a holy and righteous and perfect God care enough about me? to come and die in my place? That's the only question that any, anybody should be asking. And how do I get into a relationship with him? But they're not interested in that. They have, again, just like the Pharisees, just like all of these other groups, they, all they want to do is tear down Jesus. All they want to do is discredit Jesus. They ask him this question, and again, they come at it thinking that this question can't be answered without Jesus making a fool of himself, because... Which one of the seven brothers has a legal right to her in heaven? I want to know which one wants it after that. You know, not a real good batting record. But the, but the other question then is, okay, if, if you can't decide one of the seven, well, she can't marry, be married to all seven up there because we know how God feels about that. Thinking that they have no, there's no answer to this question. Again, no doubt smugly answer, asking it because thinking they've stumped him. Jesus' response, you do not understand Scripture or the power of God. You don't understand Scripture. You don't understand even the word that you hold. He, and he goes after this, and he, he will talk to them about the, something that's in the five books. that they. He doesn't go somewhere else. He goes right to the word that they know, the word that they study, the word that they teach, the word that they've memorized. And he says, you don't even know it. You know it here. You could speak it out of your mouth, but you don't know it. You don't know the heart behind it. You draw from the word of God conclusions that are not there. And that is a danger and that is so prevalent still today. People drawing conclusions from the word of God that are not here because they go into it with a preconceived notion. If you go into the word of God, you can find a verse taken out of context to back up any preconceived notion you go in it with. And many fall into that trap. There's a huge difference between quoting Scripture that you think supports your preconceived notion and knowing Scripture, all of it, to back up the truth of what God is speaking through his word to us in. Huge difference. He says you don't know the word of God and you don't know the power of God. You don't know the power of God. You don't recognize his power that, you know what, guess what? He can do whatever he wants to. 
He can, he can handle things however he wants. And by the way, he doesn't have to explain it to you. He doesn't have to give it to you in a way that you can understand and fit it into your puny little mind. And that's a stumbling block for many as well. They say, well, I'm not going to worship a God that I can't completely understand. Well, I'm going to tell you, a God that you completely understand isn't worthy of your worship. He is so far above us, so transcendent, so holy. That's what that word means, holy, other, so other from us. And that is why he is worthy of our worship. He said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He does what he pleases, and it's his prerogative. He's God. <laughs> and he says, first of all, regarding relationships, this is a minor issue. This thing that you're bringing, this example that you're giving, it's not even relevant. <laughs> the, and, and to us, and I, this is a minor issue. I'll get to the major issue in a moment. It's a minor issue. But for all of us who are married, it's not so minor of an issue, right? I mean, it, w my wife and I had the discussion again this week because we were talking about the text here. And it's, it's like, man, really? In heaven, we're not going to be married? We're not going to have this relationship as we have it now in heaven? No, we're not. And while that grieves us now in our understanding now, it won't then. It won't then. Because the relationships, notice he says it will be like the angels. It does not say we will be angels. We are not going to have wings and harps and have our own clouds and all that kind of stuff. It does not say we will be angels. We will be like angels. And the point is the relationship that they have with one another and their relationship to God is far beyond transcendent of a relationship that we understand in our capability of understanding right now. It's going to be a relationship that is far greater than anything that we've ever experienced with one another and with God, uninterrupted by sin and jealousy and, and bitterness and all of that. It's going to be perfect. But he said, regarding relationships, that's a minor issue. But regarding resurrection, that's the major issue. That's the thing that he hones in on with their question. Again, they're trying to trip him up with something, something totally off the subject. He gets right to the subject. It's about resurrection. It's about eternal life. It's about the fact that there is way more to life than this. It's not just this time that we are here. Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity in the heart of everyone. Those who believe as the Sadducees do or claim that they do, that they don't believe in resurrection, they don't believe in eternal life, have suppressed the truth that God has placed in the heart of every person. He has placed the truth there, but he has also placed within each and every one of us the ability to suppress that truth. And the enemy, one of his main goals is to suppress that because if he can get out of our minds and out of our hearts that God has placed there, this idea that this isn't all there is. We don't just die and it's done. There is an eternity that we must face. The only, the only thing that's left to be determined is where we spend that eternity. It's not that we can opt out. And the enemy wants to, wants to convince us that this is all there is so that we just focus on us and focus on now. 
That is where all of this, this, this ideas has come from, evolution and all of these other things, the, from, the, from the goo to the zoo to the you and all of that stuff that goes on. That, that's a lie from the enemy because he wants to get us to believe that there is not eternal life that there is not a creator, that there is not accountability, that there is not judgment. And this is huge. This is huge. If you're one that underlines in your Bible, this is, this is one of those moments. Verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Spoken to you. And he goes to a reference in Scripture that they are all familiar with. This is God speaking to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. That that was stated to Moses, yes, but that phrase was spoken to them then. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many times had all of them recited that over and over and over and missed what God was saying to them in it? Jesus said, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So what does that say about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're alive. Their physical bodies are dead, yes, but they still exist, and Yahweh is still their God and always will be. He says, you missed it. This is for you. Again, I love it. It tells us in a moment, they're speechless. They don't know what to say. Again, they think they have Jesus trapped, and he takes the word of God, and it just it had to just cut right through them. This is, like I said, this is, this is important for each of us. Spoken to you by God. What you hold in your hands is not just the number one selling book of all time. It's the living word of God. As the author of Hebrews tells us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The living word of God. Preserved for us. Protected. Presented to us. Not just corporately so we can get together here on, on Sundays and study it, but individually. Personally intimately preserved for you. So I ask you, what is God's living word saying to you? We could look at this and say, okay, well, this is what it said to Matthew. No, what is it saying to you? And if you could say, well, it's been a long time since the word of God has spoken personally to me, I challenge you this afternoon Get alone with the word of God and pray first. Say, God, I want to hear from you. I believe that you have a word for me. I believe that you want to talk to me through your living word. 
then read it and let him speak to you. That's his desire. They didn't see it coming. <laughs> they, they, they totally did not see this answer at all coming. As a matter of fact, like I said, it says, says the, the, the crowd was astonished. Everybody who heard it was astonished. But look at verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That word silenced is the Greek word which means muzzled. It's the word that Jesus used when he got up in the boat. Remember when he was sleeping, the disciples woke him up and the storm was going on and he said to the storm, peace, be still. That said, be muzzled. And what happened? Boom, like glass, not a breath of wind. Muzzled. You muzzle a dog, not so that he won't bark, but so that he can't bark. <laughs> and Jesus muzzled the Sadducees. I love that. It's almost, I get the picture, they were like, what? Leaves them speechless. When the Pharisees heard it, they gathered themselves together again. Let's try again. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. A lawyer, that being a scribe, says that he asked him a question, testing him. Again, he's continuing to, to test. That's the point. But we're going to see in a moment that this, this particular gentleman is, is, is starting, to, starting to sway. He's, he's seeing the evidence that has been presented before him, a lawyer, a scribe, one who was, was tasked with recording, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. A lawyer, one of the, comes from the Pharisaic group, the scribe, comes to him and he asks him, asks him a question. And of all the questions that have been asked, this one seems to be one that is maybe the most genuine of all of the commandments, now he's not saying of the Ten Commandments, he's all of the commandments, there were 613 commandments that the Pharisees had drawn out of the Word of God, and from those 613 had all sorts of subgroups of commandments that fell underneath those. And his question was, of all of those, what is the, what is the foremost, what is the chief, what's the greatest commandment? Not, not that all of them aren't important, but what's the most important? And they debated this a lot. They, that's what they would do. They'd sit around and debate things. And one of them was this very comment, you know, about because if, if, if you're going to match them all up, I mean, you, thou shalt not murder probably should carry more weight than thou shalt not boil a kid goat in its mother's milk, which is in here. You, you know, probably, you know... What, so when we weigh that out, Lord, what is it? And, it's, and he says, first, he gives him an answer, again, more than he bargained for, but he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, what every, again, pious Jew that was there would know. They would know this because they said it themselves every day. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. They quoted that. That was something that everybody quoted every day. But notice he says the second is like it. The second is tied to it somehow. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On an understanding of who your neighbor is, that's in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Jesus tells a parable in response to a question by a scribe. Don't know if it's the same one, but by a scribe. But tying these two together, the second is like it. They're, they're, they're inseparable. As a matter of fact, John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 4. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. We talked of that earlier. That is the only reasonable sacrifice that we can give. Our lives as a living sacrifice. All of us for him. Render unto God the things that are God's. Love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And if we do that, the second part is naturally tied to it because we will love the objects of his love. It will naturally happen. The objects of his love, one another, our neighbor. If we will love the objects of his love. The objects of his love that he demonstrated that love towards, that he died while we were yet sinners for us. That is how he demonstrated his love towards us. That love that he had for the whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If we love God totally sold out with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are going to love one another. We are going to love mankind enough to tell them of their sin. We are going to love them enough to tell them the penalty of sin. We are going to love them enough to tell them about Jesus, the only way to deal with our sin. Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets, everything else that is written in what you hold in your hand hangs on that love. Love God love one another. You know what, if we focus all of our energy on that, we're going to take a whole lot more things a whole lot less seriously. Things that we feel, things that people do, take that a whole lot less seriously when we focus our energies on that. Well, our verse ends, our, this encounter ends here in Matthew in verse 40, but Mark tells us the response of the scribe. It says, The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Here is one who has seen all of the evidence, who has heard all that Jesus has had to say. Remember back, Jesus said, and we looked at that verse earlier, he said, the will of the Father is to behold the Son and to believe in the Son. He beholds the Son. He sees Jesus. He is embracing this, and it, and it says that he's, he's getting it, that this love 
surpasses all of the sacrificial system. And you could just see it. It's, he's turning and he's rolling all this over. And Jesus says, you're not far. But the rich young ruler wasn't far either. He was right there. And Jesus said, this is the one thing that you lack. But it tells us that after Jesus explained to him, he says that he went away. He walked away. And I say that because there's no doubt in, the, in a room with this many people in it, there's no doubt probably a few of you who are close. You're hearing this message. You're hearing it again maybe for who knows how many times you've heard the gospel presented. And you've come close. You think, man, that, that's interesting. I understand it. I get it. But I'm not willing or ready to take that next step. Let me tell you, close is not good enough. There are many, many who came close but never took that step of full surrender and will face an eternity separated from the love of God, facing the wrath of God forever because they simply would not surrender, submit to the Lordship of Jesus, trusting in Him and Him alone for their salvation. And if that is you here today, and the Holy Spirit is bearing witness in your heart, you know I'm speaking to you because something's going on that you can't describe inside of you. It's simply a matter of responding and taking that next and final step. As Elijah said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Jesus is Lord, and you know it in your heart, then surrender to him. For the rest of us, what a glorious thing that he has made that evident to us. And we have all of the promises that are in this relationship, this eternal life that we have. That's where we'll end today. If you want an idea, looking ahead a little bit for next week, for Christmas, we'll be looking at verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? We'll look at that together next week, but let's pray.